0: Kind of That's the- hello prestige heads and welcome to american prestige i'm danny besner here as always with derek davison and we are excited to be joined I think for the first time, technically, though, Aaron, you were on our feed before when I was on Aaron's awesome podcast. And that is, of course, we're excited to be joined by Aaron Good, host of the American Exception podcast and author of the new book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Go out and buy it yesterday. Aaron, thanks for joining us, man.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. And I do think that I was here for a couple of episodes debating JFK and former. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah you were here to recall JFK. that as Jesus well. Christ. I don't know what I you're I guess it was about, It was huh? more memorable for me, maybe. But
0: uh, <laughs> I just want to put that. <laughs> done, like, I remembered, Aaron. These, I just want to be clear God, about it's this. It's humiliating. I remembered that you were on Jake, the Jake, leave before. it in. Leave it in. Um, well, Aaron, thank you for joining us for, I think, Third time now. So, so he's a regular. regular. He's he's gotten the what did they give on SNL? Like the, the stupid jacket. You, you've got the stupid American prestige jacket. Don't worry, it's worth nothing. But uh, why don't we just start at the beginning and 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 why did you feel that you needed to write this book? What did you think was lacking in American discussions of foreign policy, in the literature, et cetera? And in answering that question, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from. Uh, and how you went from doing, you know, a a PhD in political science to writing this book?
1: Well, yeah, it's it's funny because I don't always think that uh, a an, a story behind uh, a a book or a a decision to go into grad school is that important. But in this case, because I did something so much against the prevailing. Uh, you know, zeitgeist of the discipline that it might be worth looking at maybe for social, psychological reasons or something. So uh, basically, I grew up as a in a democratic household uh, with a mom who worked for a democratic congressman, and I majored in political science at Indiana University. And um, when, I, and uh, I had growing up, so growing up, I was aware of like Iran-Contra and some of this other business and I did care more about foreign policy, but in the '90s it was a weird time politically. There wasn't, there weren't that many. Um, there, there, it wasn't like uh, there wasn't much of an anti-imperialist kind of perspective that was very common that you would encounter. And I really didn't learn that much about foreign policy or the reality of it in grad school, despite getting a, a political science degree. And I went on and did. The, I went to Taiwan for a year and I did other uh, jobs while my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, was finishing graduate school in uh, Bloomington. And, uh, you know, I lived in Taiwan for a year. So I saw the U.S. from a different perspective and also met a lot of people and the younger people who live overseas, especially the people in Taiwan, were all pretty much on the more radical left. And I was probably a little detached from politics even though i had a political science degree but was vaguely radical but also sort of more or less like you know rooting for the democrats and stuff like that but eventually i went on to work for democratic campaigns in 2004 and 2008 2008 i worked for obama and uh went to the you know was on his campaign staff lived in missouri for a few months and uh worked really, really hard for very low pay there. And after Obama was elected, I went to the inauguration and the inaugural ball and all that stuff. And I was trying for a while to get a, a job somehow with the administration, um, because that's something that you could, that a lot of people do after work being on the campaign staff. And uh, But then the decisions or the policies of Obama were not what I had expected them to be. They were more like the third and fourth terms of George W. Bush, or they were the whatever term of Ronald Reagan. And more, the more that I looked at things, the more it seemed like everything was Ronald Reagan. And why was this the case? That was all we got was Reagan, Reagan after Reagan. And uh, especially the coup in Honduras under, under Obama, I thought was egregious. And the fact that people like Negroponte were involved there, like old Iran-Contra hands and other people. Uh, it just was, I just was clear very early that like this, the change was not, something that we should have believed in, if I can paraphrase his campaign slogan. And uh, Libya especially was just so ghastly. And so uh, it wasn't that it was nakedly imperialist because they put a fig leaf, but the fig leaf was so of of humanitarianism, but it was so clearly manufactured that it was really worse than being naked imperialism in a way because you can see that they actually figured in that, well, this is naked imperialism, so we're going to need You know, we're going to need some better excuses for this.
0: (laughs) Aaron, so do you think, like, because I would say people in the administration did believe that there was some humanitarian catastrophe. I'm not saying that's the major reason the United States intervened, but. I was just curious because I think this, like, right there, that brings us to a major point: is is to what degree do policymakers effectively believe their own bullshit, and does does that matter? I, I don't know, De- Derek. Maybe you have something to. Maybe I'm wrong. But- I, well, I I, I just
2: want to say for the record, we are the official foreign policy podcast of Third Way. Uh, yeah, I so, hope that's not a You problem, know, I won't Eric. have any. Uh, we used to work with the Democratic Leadership Council, but I, you know, I, I don't want to disparage any of the fine folks in the in the Democratic Party here. So. <laughs> No, go ahead, Aaron. It's. I think it's a. It's a good question. I mean, uh, Danny's written on this, and and it is something to consider. Like, how 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 far does the belief go? Like, how far is it genuinely? Because I don't you know, think do people genuinely think they're
0: doing good versus the sort of cynical. Right. They're not uh, all super you know, cynical. I just don't right. think having having read and studied these people and does the cynicism is does that matter, or does the lack of cynicism matter?
1: Right. Well, I think that if you were going to get into like what Obama and what Hillary actually thought and believed at the time, it might be hard to really discern that from any available sources or why they believed what they believed. Um, I have come to think that the presidency is somewhat managed at this stage because whatever happened with Honduras likely began planning for it because of the timing of it likely began under Bush and was... Probably something that was carried on. I'll get to I'm going to get to Libya in, in a second, but it was because uh, I of the bomba thing.
2: Joe Biden is not being managed. Okay, can we just be, be very clear about that? <laughs> he Joe sees Biden. all. <laughs> He's on it, man. So with
1: but so what I what I think has happened is in the system that we have now. If you are an, an assistant person like Obama and you have risen, you've only risen because you have been sensitive to the cues of the establishment, the higher ups, and you respond to them and they favor you and so on. And if you didn't think that way and if you didn't act that way, then you wouldn't be able to advance. And so Obama steps in and he's already got this team of people who are like neocons on foreign policy or... Or crypto neocons like some Sam Power. I mean, Sam Power is always is the like the uh, champion of humanitarian intervention. But then you look at like all the countries where that needs to happen, and it just happens to match exactly with like the people that the neocons want to get as well. And so, really, let's not try to split too many hairs over the differences between Sam Power and uh, Victoria Newland, for example. So when Obama is when Libya goes down, I mean, we know that. The neocons, the Project for New American Century people, they had N- Libya in their sights for a long time. Um, how exactly the Arab Spring business unfolded—hard to say. But remember that that's really the pretext for these those two wars: the Libya and Syria war. The like pretext was the Arab Spring, and more has come out over the years that uh people in Tahrir Square were connected to the National Endowment for Democracy and so on, and so. And we also know that Twitter and Facebook and Google are pretty much parts of the U.S. regime as well. So we should really go back and look at that whole Arab Spring thing again, knowing Could that we're not going to get to the bottom
0: of it. Aaron, what do you mean by they're part of the U.S. regime? Could you just map it out and be explicit? Because it, I think it's crucial to your to your theoretical framework that you deploy in the book.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the tech monopolies, which I don't spend an undue amount of time on, but we're seeing now that they just censor people. I mean, they're now Twitter and, or Facebook is hiring um, X in quotation marks, CIA people to handle like content moderation. But really, the political stuff on Facebook goes back further than that. I've noticed that more radical people on Facebook all sort of share the same sense of like, I don't really want to even mess with Facebook because like I'm so throttled by the algorithm and so on. Uh, Twitter, as you know, has kicked off people recently, like Patrick Lawrence or Our Hidden History, people that weren't, tro- you know, doing anything that violated their rules. I mean, Patrick Lawrence, his last book, which was called "Time No Longer," was published by Yale University Press, and he just writes anti-imperialist foreign policy essays, and he was just kicked off Twitter with no explanation recently. Um, so we see more clearly now how um, how these entities function as you know more or less arms of the of our system of governance uh but but it wasn't as obvious back when the arab spring happened but i was personally very suspicious of this at the time when all those new libyan twitter accounts suddenly pop up and now you know it's uh, we know that they have uh you know hired all sorts of people like signature reduction force and so on to like manipulate social media and so on But what does that mean for the president and the decisions that he makes? Well, I would guess that these things get presented to the president in a particular way. And people argue for them uh, with other agendas and that they sort of control the people who are briefing the president a lot of the time. Obama did go on to say that Libya was like the worst mistake of his uh, administration and so on. But you know, when, when you look at Libya in the long run or in the in the bigger picture, you see why why Libya. Well, what is Libya? What did Libya do that other countries run in trouble, get in trouble for doing? They nationalized their resource wealth and they use it to develop the population. Libya was the most prosperous country in Africa in, in measure in any measurable sense in terms of like life expectancy, literacy, housing, and so on. Uh, and well, uh, the, the now it's a basket case. And it doesn't really, it represents more or less what the U.S. would would have preferred. The U.S. would prefer basket case chaos in, uh, you know, countries rather than countries where the national resource wealth is nationalized to further the human development of the population. So uh, Libya is not an aberration. It's a continuation. And so it has to be looked at in that light. And so any... Uh, you know, assertions of it being about saving the people should be looked at with great skepticism. When it more or less fits the longer pattern, anyway, what Obama believed, I would guess that it was presented to him by by people and powerful people endorsed what he, the action that he eventually took, and so that was the path that he took—the path of kind of least resistance. Even Hillary, who was supposed to be behind the uh, the whole thing more than Obama in terms of like pushing it forward. She was, there's e- the emails from WikiLeaks show that Sidney Blumenthal, strangely, Max Blumenthal's dad, was advising her at the time about Libya and he was explaining to her about why the French were really on board with the invasion. And he mentioned uh, like the gold dinar that, that, lot, that uh, Gaddafi was proposing to sort of get Africa out of the, uh, fr- out of French domination and European domination, you know, a currency for the African Union and these other issues, but the fact that he was even sending all of this to Hillary is very strange, because she's already pushing for the war, and it's like, she's not really even necessarily, if she's asking for this kind of material, and he's sending it to her, then it, it almost seems like she's trying to figure out herself what the angles are, even though she's already having work. <laughs> so, I, I don't, I think the people at the top at this point, the main thing that characterizes them above all is co-optability and credulousness and not pursuing uh, an an independent foreign policy, basically going with the people that are already there and accepting their overall cosmology. You know, it's not like um, Oliver Stone is going to walk into, or I'm sorry, Oliver Stone. It's not like uh, Barack Obama would have walked into a cabinet meeting and say, I just read this from, you know, Counterpunch. And, you know, this is, our motives in this country are not pure and we need to somehow help the people or whatever. Like these guys accept the worldview of the establishment and so i think that they're surrounded by people that further that and that's just that, that i think that's probably how you explain it. it's not that obama's a terrible guy it's just the system creates uh, all of this mo- um you know inertia one way and they go you go with it or you get uh you know you get pushed aside obama was asked by progressive activists who donated to his campaign and some of them had money they bought a table at one of these events and they got to speak to him this is from Ray McGovern. Uh, some, someone close to Ray McGovern told him this. And so they asked Obama, why haven't you done more progressive things? And Obama said that you, that you promised. And Obama said, uh, well, I don't want to end up like Martin Luther King. So that may be part of <laughs> the whole thing. But thing think, so do you, nice. do you want to, let's say you're not, let's say it's not as clear cut as like assassination. Do you right. want to butt heads with the establishment and run into all kind of political problems? Or do you want to end up like Obama with, Basically, you know all the money that you'd ever want, and your kids set for generations, and so on. Like it's a very easy choice for most people to make.
2: So I have a couple of uh, follow ups here on, on things that you you said. I, I the first one is I, I think probably easier to answer for somebody like Hillary Clinton, who is you know achieved the status of party bigwig. She gets named Secretary of State without, I would say any necessary background in, dipl- like in diplomacy or anything that would lend you, lend oneself. She gets it as sort of a, uh, you know, a consolation prize, I think, from Obama um, after the primary. Do you do you think for somebody like that, it's a question, you know, when you're looking at an issue like Libya, it's a question of like, momar Gaddafi has been labeled a bad guy. He's been a bad guy for, you know, 30 years at that point or whatever. Uh, and she just sort of like in a, you know, sort of, brainstem way like reflexively says Gaddafi yeah bad guy we got to get rid of him and then it's you know up to the people like Sid Blumenthal and these other kind of hangers on to fill in the details and and try to you know and, and kind of backstop what she sort of just knows on a on a superficial level
1: right yeah i mean i i would you would have to get hillary on the stand under oath and even then i don't know that she would ever really Tell the whole truth about who it was that gave. We her should the be clues able to get her on the that, show. I uh, think. Yeah. right, be. Right. So these are these are kind of uh, what you know what Bruce Cummings and I think Dean Acheson originally said this. That they're imponderables. Of course, if Dean Acheson says that it's kind of a different, takes on a different meaning. That it would be more in relation to like the people underneath him and the things that they need to know. But I think that these are questions that you're not going to really get. The answer to, in terms of like who, who, or what group of people really were the ones who, who decided that this was something that needed to happen and could prevail on people to let them know. And how did they prevail on these people to let them know that th- something is, is going to happen? I think it's a little, I mean, at this point, the empire and the things that they do, the foreign policies are so gangsterish. I think that maybe comparing it to a, a mafia type thing is sometimes applicable. And so, you know, who are uh, who is it that can go around and and say things like, you know, who will remove this stone from my shoe <laughs> and, and, and and let it be known that like something is going to be like the policy they want to pursue? I don't really, I don't have the answer for that at all times. So I, I just, I think that, I don't think that she looks at everything as generically as these are the, the good guys who do good things and these are the bad guys who do bad things and Gaddafi is in the latter category. I have to guess that that she understood that this was a person who pursued policies that the U.S. opposed and was a problem for the U.S. for a number of decades even, and that uh, this was a chance for her to please the establishment. And if she does this, it might help her to get uh, the nomination at some point in the future because you can't really be too much of of an imperialist in this system. And so she made the probably rational choice to uh, back this uh, and to thereby please the forces that really were especially wanting this to happen,
2: and we all lived happily ever after. So thank goodness for that. A um, sad tale. Yeah <laughs> my my second my second follow up. You you mentioned in the context of the Arab Spring uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about them. Uh, this is an organization that crops up in a lot of cases where there are protest movements, uh, you know, even bordering on revolutions uh, in countries that maybe have governments that are not so favorable to the United States. At the same time, though, uh, I guess my, my question is, do you, do you see the NED as being uh, targeted in that way, or is it just sort of shotgunning these uh, kind of support for opposition movements and pro-democracy and, you know, whatever you want to label them uh, out everywhere? Because I would argue in the case of Egypt, uh, you know you had any de involvement there. It would have been better for the United States had Hosni Mubarak just remained in power like that revolution was not in in u s interests or that uprising. uh it worked out okay because we got a military dictator again, you know after a couple of years but um the the, the disturbance uh was not necessarily in in u s national interest so is the is it is it like a, a an intentional kind of targeted thing? Or are they just kind of spewing this stuff out and uh, all over the place and then you you get the correlations in, in places where the united states would prefer maybe a regime change or something like that
1: well the the people and some of the main people in Tyre square and this was a documented at the time based on sources like from the new york times by this guy named tody cart tony, he went by tony Cartalucci, but now he he, uh, he he does youtube stuff under another name and he kind of compiled all these things back in the day i haven't gone back to look at them for a number of years now but as i recall the people in Tahrir Square, some of them had actually gone to New York and DC and appeared with Hillary Clinton uh, and, and met with her before the Arab Spring happened, and so this su- suggests that it was Egypt was really a special a priority for some sort of reasons. Now, when you look at what the actual outcome was, it, it's not like they put in a democratic regime in Egypt. So what was the overall outcome of the Arab Spring? None of the countries really moved in any sort of progressive pro-people direction, not Tunisia, not uh, Egypt. But they did serve as a pretext for the Arab Spring Wars, which were more or less a continuation of the 9-11 wars, which are pretty much like a continuation of, well, it depends how you want to look at really 9-11. I'm even going to try to, st- to start to mention those, those aspects of it now or the response to 9-11. But really, there's great continuity between the Arab Spring Wars and the 9-11 Wars, they both were furthering this neocon agenda. And so what is the role of uh, uh, this unipolar U.S. dominance uberale's agenda, right? So what is the role of the National Endowment for Democracy in these sorts of spectacles? Well, the National Endowment for Democracy was created in the 1980s uh, by William Casey, okay, who is as, you know, s- grim and sinister, a cold war a yeah, friend of the pod from Beyond <laughs> the Grave, I'm sure. He's up there in heaven listening to the podcast.
0: Yeah, we have um, lots of ghosts on this show, actually. I hope it's not too spooky.
1: Right, and uh, so they created the National Endowment for Democracy in the 1980s, and one of their early founders put it quite easily, or quite succinctly. He said, we basically do all the things that were done by the CIA, you know, 20 years ago. And this is, uh, a, a, they fund all sorts of organizations to manipulate civil society and influence civil society, and this, the reason that this is done in the 1980s and not the 19, like 1960s and 70s is the 1980s, well, first of all, you do have those scandals that emerge in the wake of Watergate dealing with the intelligence community and the need for even more obscure uh, ways of operating for them, even more secrecy and so on. So further degrees of separation from the CIA. So that's a, that's a part of it. And the other part is that by the 1980s, thanks to the end of the Bretton Woods system and the rise of the Washington consensus and U.S. dollar hegemony and kind of structural domination uh, carried out, you know, with the IMF and the the dominance of the U.S., you know, the petrodollar treasury bill standard that's established by the 1980s. At that point, you can actually have, uh, rather than just dictatorships and so on that they used to put in in the 60s and 70s. Even the '50s, when countries got out of line, at this point that doesn't become as necessary. So if you if you think of the CIA and its heyday of like coups and installing governments and stuff, it's not the Reagan era. The the Reagan era, there aren't that many of those examples of like Chile 1973, Indonesia 1965, Brazil '64, Iran '53, you know Congo 1960. All these Guatemala, things. right? Guatemala. I mean, we could we could rattle. We would be the here doxology. for the rest of the show.
0: The doxology is what I call it. <laughs> but
1: that doesn't happen as much under Reagan. And the big part is that structurally, the international political economy has changed with this new Bretton Woods st- system and this Rumpelstiltskin dollar, and so on, to where democracy is no longer really that much of a threat to the United States. Uh, by and large. And so you can promote democracy, but you're always promoting a certain kind of neoliberal compatible democracy. Uh, and William I. Robinson has a book on this called Promoting Polyarchy, which, uh, you know, I, I think is not, is, is a good. Well, it's a good compilation of a lot of these. It's more cautious than I would be even in terms of some of its assessments, but it's a great c- compilation of some of the NED's greatest hits up to the point that it was written. And this is just a way to have managed democracy. I mean, we have managed democracy in the United States, by and large, and top-down rule. And we're the country that actually controls, like the dollar, And in theory, the government could actually do all kinds of things to help the population and have people living quite comfortably and secure, based on the wealth of the empire. But we don't. But if we, if America has this managed democracy, then imagine how easy it is to manage the democracy through your control of economic institutions. Uh, if you're in the United States and these other countries are having to depend on you, and they either are going to get get good with the dollar system or they're going to be in all sorts of trouble, then you can see why you can promote this kind of democracy for PR purposes, but that it's actually a more effective version of top-down rule than you know actually putting dictators in who are who look bad for from a, a PR perspective, so they can say democracy's on the rise. So. If you want to trace the evolution of this, look at our guy, Sam Huntington, and how he wrote Political Order and Changing Societies, right? He writes that, and he basically obscures the CIA hand in all these coups, and he says that they're veto coups when countries try to develop too fast, you know, and that that's what happens. The military will get angry if you try to do X, Y, and Z, and so that's what happens. It's not the CIA, so he obscures that stuff, but then by the 90s, he's writing about like the third wave of democracy, so, democracy kind of become, and he's like Mr. Establishment of, of political science. I mean, this is like, he he represented the sort of imperial hive mind enshrined in the academy in the United States in the, in the discipline of political science. And he was writing about the third wave of democracy and these waves of democracy and how they're going to like change, you know, how that's the new thing that you've got to get with. And so, we got to see how democracy becomes kind of a, a brand of the United States, but it's a real anti-democratic democracy, meaning that like... It's top-down rule vis-a-vis or uh, via democracy, and that this is oh, we got to think of the NED.
2: And I, I, I mean, I would say I would add to that that you know, in in the cases where uh, the voters don't comply, let's say with the this uh, neoliberal-friendly brand of democracy, and to take it back to the Arab Spring, uh, you could sort of view the project as you know, Mubarak and is a is a pawn. He gets sacrificed to allow this movement to spread to Syria and to Libya and to, you know, in places where the United States really wants regime change. you uh, know I mean, Ali Abdullah Saleh in, in Yemen also uh, was, you know, overthrown in that period. You let these guys go with the understanding that, I mean, in the case of Yemen, it was, you know, right back to a, a U.S. friendly kind of dictator. Uh, in Egypt, there was this experiment with democracy, but the voters didn't go along with the plan. They elected a Muslim Brotherhood government and lo and behold, that government is out two years later and you have a another friendly dictator in place, basically.
1: Yeah, that's how it ends up, ends up happening. And they're all scripted according to certain things. There's like the, the there was like the Rose Revolution. I mean, they really got this down, but like the colors right? there's like the, the beige revolution. they got it down to a real science with the narratives and how they're, they're going to go down.
0: Um, Aaron, like, I've got a question. It's just wild. Kind of just emerges directly from, from Derek's and your conversation, which is, to what degree do you think there's intention here? And to what degree do you think it's the system working things out? Because I think there's a tension in how we talk about it. You know, at one point, we identify nefarious actors, whether the CIA or the NED. But on the other hand, as you know, basically Marxist-inspired thinkers, we we understand that structure is ultimately the determining factor. Even though you do need agents to enact things, so when we're talking about something like you know the Muslim Brotherhood's in, and then oh look out, they're out, they're out two years later. To what to what degree is that really intentionality, and to what degree is that the system doing what the system does? Because I mean, I'm moving more toward in, in the last few years the notion that like the algorithm is. To become conscious in a sense like human agency is less and less important um even though agents do matter so i was just curious your thoughts about that
1: right well this gets into a, a fundamental question in terms of understanding like history and the way that politics is is working now i think that what when you're saying that it's the algorithm is conscious, conscious or it's the system doing these things i think that it's because the actual decision makers are obscured and the decision making process is so obscured, it's kind of understandable that people would fall into that, you know, uh, mode of thinking about things. But ultimately, there have to be people who decide which regimes are to be targeted and why, and they have to have a criteria for it. I don't think that they, in their own mind, necessarily frame it in Marxist terms. But if you are a Marxist and you're looking at the uh, and you're looking at U.S. hegemony and trying to guess of what, what kind of countries the U.S. should go after, you know, I mean, I, I think that at some point you do have to have some kind of sinister people, especially since the Cold War is over and it, it can't be all attributed to like the Cold War mentality. Then you've got to have people who are looking at it and actually thinking of in terms of you know how can we extend control over what countries are standing in the way of us having basically total control of the world and what sort of policies do we want to pursue do we want to actually have stable control over certain regions or do we want to destabilize certain regions in order to advance other goals there have to be people thinking in these terms it can't just be that the system is is it's is itself conscious because that makes and i you know that makes no sense and so there there are people but i think that they are so obscured from us and their motives they're wise enough to understand that their actual aims and methods are would not be accepted by people and so they are hidden uh, from public view the, the the formulations these debates about these that's things. what i and want to so, ask
0: pause yeah i think everyone knows that there's a good chance jfk was assassinated by nefarious forces i think everyone knows that the us has acted really brutally abroad why do you think exposure matters Because I would say things have been exposed and no one cares. (laughs) Well, but they, but
1: I would say this, if for no other reason, we can surmise that it's important because they surmise that it's important. They censor things on the internet and they are looking to bury people PR wise. I mean, Oliver Stone, for example, put out this very well done damning documentary on the JFK assassination that really confirms a lot of the things that he was, you but that know, could raked just be the intra,
0: for. You know, that could just be intra-elite stuff. You know, well, when it, we're talking about massive political change, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but don't the majority of Americans think JFK was assassinated not by just Lee Harvey Oswald? Right.
1: That yeah, was eight right? per, and, It was down to eight percent in the nineteen seventies after they right, showed right. the recruiter film.
0: Right. So, so, like, my so it's interesting. I just want to pose the question because you're right. I totally agree. This is not a democratic country, particularly when it comes to foreign policy and macroeconomic policy. So there's a there's a tension I see between exposure as a radical act and the fact that this isn't a democratic country, and everyone and, and their mother and father could believe that. X or Y nefarious action was undertaken by the United States and nothing will change. And I think we're actually, we're seeing that, I, I guess, is to put a fine point on it.
1: Right. I, I think that in terms of what is the value of talking about the dark side of U.S. foreign policy and the imperial regime... I think regime, there is value.
0: I just want to say there is value just in like a sort of esoteric, philosophical, like knowledge is, is useful. I'm talking about political change. Right. It doesn't seem to me like it's a key to political change, I guess. Sorry to interrupt. and Now I'll stop.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that any... Clever argument or persuasive argument that somebody is going to make about the Kennedy assassination by itself will lead to a disclosure of the Kennedy assassination and what actually happened and thereby bring about political change. Because people have been making this case for a long time. And they've made it very well. And if you follow the literature very well, if you've read a number of books on it, it isn't a, a case where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it really, it does seem like it's possible. It, the, the, my assessment is that the more you look at it, it's a preponderance of evidence and it's actually kind of a false mystery, like Vincent Salandre used to say, and that it's uh, pretty clear that he was removed by the pinnacle of power in the in the United States and that they, they've covered it up ever since. And that's really the only way to explain this. So, you can make that argument very well and people have made it and yet it doesn't seem to matter because power doesn't have to answer but i what i would what i would say is the value of it potentially is that as this empire is unraveling which we're seeing now it's going to make more people question the things that they have been told because the lies are more exposed now than than ever i mean this is why you're seeing a move to like they wanted to appoint under a democratic administration. They wanted to appoint uh, a minister of information, more or less, like that. That one uh, strange woman that they had on there for a while. And that lasted for dropped. two
0: weeks. So I guess why? Right, do you but think it's, it's indicating something
1: bigger, though.
0: Why, why do you think the empire is coming apart? Because I, I think here, let me pose my theory: is that we're living at a, a unique moment because. Given technological advances, given the ending of the draft, given the particular placement of the U.S. empire around the globe, you don't actually need very many people to manage it. So we could have almost total dislocation at home and still have the empire. It's not Rome. It's not Britain where you need, or the Ottoman Empire, or many, many, Austria, Hungary, whatever, uh, where you needed literal people to do things. You needed literal people to go places and do things. We don't live in that world anymore. So I think we could have a situation where there's total domestic dislocation and chaos and still have the empire. Um, So I actually am, I'm I'm bullish on American empire. I think it's going to be here for a long time for precisely the reasons I just uh, laid out. Curious what you thought about that.
1: I can't predict the future, and it did look—it it looked bad for some observers back in the around the time of Vietnam, and the U.S. was able to parlay that chaos into uh, being more dominant than ever. But I think that that was a actually catastrophic success, and that that made uh, it made the U.S. have basically the unlimited money and power relative to every country in the world, and made it the most powerful empire in human history. But as is the case with other empires, this leads to hubris. And um, they went for unipolarity forever. At the With the fall of the Soviet Union, they could have gone in a different way. Uh, they, Gorbachev actually wanted something quite different. He wanted social democracy and uh, a, a massive writing off of debts for the third world and aid to the third world uh, to help these countries. The U.S. did not go that route. Instead, they turned Russia into a third world country privatizing its resources and putting in an oligarchy. I mean, it's really quite something to hear how John McCain used to say that this, the Russia was a gas station with nukes, but the US with shock therapy and everything else intentionally wanted to make Russia essentially forever a hewer of wood and drawer of water with a corrupt oligarchy that's subservient to Western high finance. So this is quite something when he says that, oh, Russia's a gas station with nukes because that was actually the plan. Uh, for people after the fact, so with the but the U.S. went for all of these wars in the Middle East to try to control the energy heartlands in perpetuity. I mean, they more or less write this in the project for a new American century manifesto. But then again, this was but their At a quick wrinkle, the
0: the the U.S. doesn't rely on Middle Eastern energy anymore, right? So it's it, that's just an interesting wrinkle, right? It's mostly U.S. allies. I'm right there, right, Derek? Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, um, the U.S. doesn't import. Very
2: much oil from the Middle East, but I, I mean, it all goes into like global it's stability. Yeah. It's it, and oil just... prices, kind of international oil prices and the energy market, um, denominated in but dollars. No. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So, uh, so totally. no, I yeah. mean, there's no, there's not a, a, the same direct like nineteen seventies embargo type of right but there's a global but,
0: capitalism structure but which it's is still what to keep getting things at, yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. You it's it's the, important for that. Stability. Yeah. I just want people to know that because most people don't know that.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's not that they're they're like thinking we're gonna get in there and we're gonna get all, we get all that oil and there's gonna be so much oil and gas for the United States that we're gonna go back to like having nineteen fifty six Buicks that weigh four tons and everybody's driving around. It's gonna be awesome. It's that they wanted the Middle East because you control middle eastern oil and they had had designs for iran too that was this the thing like yeah anybody can go to baghdad real men want to go to tehran that's right right? yeah
2: that's
0: right
1: so they Uh, wanted control
2: it's actually our
0: podcast slogan
2: very good very good (laughs) i I think i mean to add to this like like for people like donald trump uh, you know who talks about you know going and getting the oil we should have gotten the oil like taking iraq's oil and we're going to go into syria and get the oil like that's because his brain died in the 1970s. I mean that's he hasn't had a thought since then How dare you dare <laughs> uh, so it, it's not the way it's not the way things work now
1: right but there but they did want if you have control and especially they thought that the Caspian Basin had even more oil than it did. this was like Dick Cheney was on like the uh, Dick Cheney and Dick Armitage roll on the Azerbaijan Chamber of Commerce in the years following. The coup in Azerbaijan that nobody talks about, which is right after the Cold War ends, they send in the jihadis and iran contra guys like Ed Dearborn and Richard, and that's McCord. the old Hitler
0: plan. Hitler wanted Baku. Did yeah. You ever see the famous picture of Hitler with the birthday cake, and it's Azerbaijan with Baku in the middle of it? Like this is the law. This is the dream of of, of Western Europeans for a long time to have to have access to that. So right. it's in, from a geostrategic perspective, this is, remains relatively coherent over time. Right. You want to you want to control
2: it. You don't necessarily need to seize it or, or confiscate it, but you do want control of it.
1: Right. And this was, and, and China's rise was something that I, I believe that they really th- tried at one point. If you look at Tiananmen Square now, there are many reasons to suspect that that that, that was a National Endowment for Democracy kind of influence thing, including the fact that Gene Sharp, who was one of the poster boys of this whole movement, was in Beijing like the day before, the uh, you know, or he, he left before the violence happened or something to that effect. But you know, set all that aside. The point was that China was going to rise economically and, and that the US hadn't been able to like totally co opt them into a neoliberal kind of system. And so they were worried about this. And this is what Brzezinski's writing about in the late 90s that the nightmare scenario would be the barbarians coming together. And by the barbarians, he really meant Russia and China because the material wealth of Central Asia and Eurasia is so vast. That continent, that, that landmass is so huge that if united there, that could pose a threat to. Anglo, to the Atlanticist, you know, dream that has that we've been living under for the rest of the world, perhaps more of a nightmare. And this, what basically what Brzezinski said was his nightmare scenario, has been unfolding. They've failed to, they've had to withdraw from Afghanistan, and you have to look at that occupation as being really about control of this Eurasian landmass that sits right in between China, Russia, and Iran, the three main pillars of. You know a, a counter a Eurasian counterforce to American hegemony, and they uh, Iraq also also the Iraq war has not been successful. The U.S. is still there. The U.S. was about to get kicked out completely, uh, more or less. They've been asked by Parliament to leave. ISIS came emerged at a time that was let's say fortuitous, and Rand wrote some reports on this about sort of talking about something like ISIS before ISIS and how that would be potentially helpful, which is very interesting, but these, the Arab spring wars didn't really secure the mid, the middle East. They didn't allow them to redraw the map. They, they were uh, stopped in Syria from uh, regime change. Thanks to the Russians, which made Russia public enemy number one. Uh, but they already were more or less. Uh, and so the, the U S has failed in what it set out to do with the nine 11 wars and the Arab spring wars. And what we're seeing really is a, uh, Pretty much exactly what Brzezinski described as the nightmare scenario for American hegemony. And, uh, with it, with the rise of China being even faster than I think a lot of people thought. So this is the difference now is that the U.S. doesn't have this boogeyman of communism and it, it's, uh, to act to legitimize all of its hypocritical and kind of schizophrenic prop policies. And also the strength. So the U.S. I don't think is, is in a, a strong position for a number of reasons and. The adversaries of the United States are stronger than ever before, and really, the uh, the, the areas where the in the, this mult this emerging multipolarity can play out are the other parts of the global South, like Latin America and like Africa, where they may potentially have more choices of who to do business with, whether it's going to be a Chinese-backed, you know, uh, system or an american one and the chinese give better deals to countries than the united states does the chinese haven't been staging coups against people who nationalize oil they'll just do business with governments even if they nationalize their oil so brazil petrobras state-owned company you know still although i think that's that whole struggle over that's probably part of why we saw you know lula in jail and dilma impeached and all that but uh, if you're brazil and you have petrobras your state oil company and, and Ch- china will just buy the oil from them if they want oil from them for example and that they don't have a problem with that and the uh, this is they're going to be able to have a more attractive uh set of deals to make with countries than the united states because the united states uh opposes ec- any economic deals that are in any way democratic by and large i mean i don't i don't see any other way to ex- to explain it and so uh there's going to be a there's going to be another game in town in a way that there really wasn't during the cold war and i think this is just going to continue this way unless something radical happens or if, unless they blow up the world
2: that's interesting that you bring that up i mean there was uh i think uh a debt justice just put out a a report or a statement they'd reviewed world bank data and i mean you get all this rhetoric from the us about how china's driving debt crises across the developing world and all these bad Chinese loans. And they're like, uh, manipulating, you know, they're, 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 uh, using these things for nefarious ends. It turns out, I mean, the debt crisis is driven far more by Western private lenders who charge higher interest rates, uh, who don't participate in debt forgiveness or, or restructuring the way the China, the Chinese government does. Um, it's, it's sort of, you know, a uh, 180 degrees <laughs> different basically from the uh, the story that you got out of washington on on this in particular um, and i wonder you know in in the context of of that which which gets into uh, the whole contest for Africa now, which I think is becoming, you know, a bigger deal in terms of superpower interaction. Do you think that the Middle East is going to get a break here as we move from competition over fossil fuels to competition over rare earths? Um, You know, Afghanistan, obviously one of the appeals of an extended occupation of Afghanistan was the mineral wealth, the uh, copper and, and, you know, some rare earth met- metals that are supposedly... Uh, accessible in Afghanistan? Do you do you view this as a a situation where we're going to be talking about like the Congo in thirty years the way we talk about Iraq now, or is it just going to keep expanding and uh, the Middle East is still screwed no matter what? <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Yeah, I mean, sort of morbid.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I don't. I think they may be running out of tricks and jihadis in the Middle East. It's hard to say how that's going to to unfold. I mean, the U.S. is still occupying illegally, brazenly, illegally. Uh, an area of Syria and under the most absurd of pretexts that they're, they're fighting ISIS but this seems to be, as I understand it, the only place where ISIS really has much of a control of any territory so that has to be looked at and, and questioned deeply um, as for, so is the Middle East going to get a break? I don't know. And I'm, you're not going to get me on the record saying things are going to be great in the Middle East for a while because they're too important to too many people to be left alone. And so there's a lot of forces at play there and they've really screwed that region for a long time, quite tragically. But for Congo itself, I mean, they've had, they're there, they have been important, but they've never not been important. I mean, we had a, our, our guy in there Mobutu for like 30, 30 years. And then he became inconvenient and we destabilized his country, uh, really an invasion of two proxy forces, Rwanda and Uganda. And they've killed like tens of millions of people, or no, not tens of millions, around 10 million people uh, in the late 90s and through the 2000s. And there's still violence in, in the Congo. So they, it's perpetually kept that country as a basket case with no functioning state. And a, a, a place where Glencore and other massive multinationals can do a lot of looting uh, and essentially steal all the cobalt and coltan that goes into our smartphones and everything else. And people, you know, these same people who are, would be like tweeting on their phones about th- this or that woke cause or whatever, like they don't have a, a mumbling word to say about the child slaves in Congo who are you know, providing the materials for their phones. That's kind of the American way. Uh, so these, there is going to be more of a of a struggle over these uh, kinds of elements and uh, sorry, resource resources, whatever you want to call them, in the world that are very uh, important for the digital age. And is this going to be is the trade around these materials going to be organized in a reasonably equitable way that allows these countries to develop their own infrastructure and so on? I mean, with China, if they do deals with these countries. They will build roads and railroads and other things, and they won't net use the U.S. model of deeply indebting these countries and then forcing IMF, uh, you know, restructuring on them. That hasn't been the Chinese way to date. I can't predict what China would do if the U.S. were much greater, you know, weakened much more greatly. Like, would they start to become more predatory in that case? I don't know. I can't. I don't want to put a white hat on them. But as it stands now, if you're in a resource-rich, uh, underdeveloped country in the global south, you are much better off working with the Chinese and dealing with the Chinese than the Americans. At least history suggests that.
2: Another factor here, I think, to consider in terms of how things are going to play out is climate change. Um, you know, and and I look at the Middle East, and already you know across North Africa and in the Persian Gulf, there are places that are. Verging on uninhabitable, it gets so hot in the summer that it is literally humans cannot live in, in those conditions. Um, do you, do you view this as, you know, how do you view this kind of impacting, uh, U.S. foreign policy moving forward? And, and, you know, to take another region, you know, talk about the, the South Pacific where there's, you know, heated competition between the U.S. and China for, for influence in these island nations that, you know, may not exist geographically in another fifty years or by the end of the century. Uh, how how does that kind of impact the 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 way that things are get, may roll out?
1: Yeah, this is a crisis for the 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 West and for the whole world. And I think that historians, if there are historians in fifty years, they will look back on this time and see the the U.S. actions as criminally irresponsible. I think that even setting aside like, you know, Reagan, Bush, uh, Bush two policies that were, you know, very aggrandizing to to the consumption of fossil fuels and so on, looking at Obama and the crash of oil prices under Obama, which I believe was done with the help of the Saudis, the Saudis massively ramped up production, I have to believe with the encouragement of the United States. And also the way that QE was played out, I put that in the book that that was partly used. Or it affected a boom in fracking in the U.S. that made no economic sense because the uh, the cost of extracting this stuff was more than the actual cost, especially or the value of the fuel extracted, especially once the price collapsed, which happened in part because they got all of this fracked, you know, natural uh, fracked fossil fuels. In the U.S., the U.S. became Obama brags about making the U.S. a big uh, oil producer, for example. So this, uh, the, the, what the U.S. did here is was irresponsible in a criminal sense. We should have been, with all of this money that we had, we should have been having our finest minds instead of thinking about strange uh, formulas that they could write to produce, you know, different uh, fancy derivatives and so on you know where you've got like MIT producing their best mathematicians into working for wall street producing garbage junk derivatives that are so mathematically complicated that nobody understands them and then they all collapse right like why did the us not mobilize and the rest of the west uh, its economic resources into why didn't they put that into coming up with better ways of uh, you know setting up energy infrastructure and reducing the use of raw materials and oil consumption and so on. Why haven't we put all this energy into constructing a a civilization that can actually be sustainable and work? And I think it's because all of these things touch on sacred cows for the military industrial complex in the United States. And, and so they, it's a, it's unthinkable to really damage that they would rather have this unstable, crazy world where the military is going to matter because it's the world has gone to shit rather than have, uh, prosperity and stability and so this is this i think will help to make sense of the senselessness of u.s foreign policy because there actually is a logic to what they're doing it's just that they they don't mind really damaging the future or risking the future of humanity uh, because the prime directive of the of the the people with power in the united states is imperial hegemony in perpetuity
2: i just want to say i have all my money in dogecoin so i'm 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 not opposed to the the, we actually pay each other in Dogecoin for yeah. this podcast. We just kind of <laughs> I
0: hope that swap it back I haven't, and forth. I haven't looked at the uh, the rates though. I hope they're still doing as <laughs> well when we first starting this started doing this over a year ago. Uh, Aaron, so I think it's probably time to wrap up. We've been going for a while, but I wanted to know if there's one thing that you want people to take away from your book what is that? So you you already said that we want imperialism in perpetuity. So that's probably a a big takeaway. But maybe I thought you you had some interesting writing on the state. So maybe what what do you want people to take away from the nature, uh, about the nature of the American state in your book?
1: Well, I think that America posits that it's a bastion of democracy and so on. And I've become more radical in my thinking about the way that the country actually functions. But um, in some sense, I am hopeful in a democratic sense. Otherwise, I wouldn't even take the time to try to spell these things out. So people that read this and think, what are the general things looking for that we should advocate for, especially when there is a moment of flux and crisis, which is probably coming. I think that like adhering to actual democracy and the principle of one person, one vote is a good starting point. And also recognizing that state secrecy and criminality and imperialism have really warped democratic life and basically destroyed democracy and allowed for a kind of top-down rule and a massive concentration of wealth at the top and that's totally anti-democratic and that we have to recognize these these issues as being central to any resolution that we're going to have to move society in a positive direction we cannot allow top-down rule and control of information and so on uh, forever because that's brought us to this point and we should also try having a state that acts in a lawful way uh, by and large and this would also be beneficial
0: well that's as good a note to end on as any Aaron Good co-host, not co-host, only host of American Exception Podcast author of American Exception pick up that book now, thank you so much for joining us and we'll definitely have you on again All right, thank you gentlemen thanks Aaron